0: Hi, I'm Dr. Hilary McBride. Normally, therapy sessions are totally confidential, but in Other People's Problems, I open the doors to let you hear sessions with my long-standing clients. This is what people sound like when they talk with someone they trust about healing addiction, parenting stress, racist ideologies in the family, and other topics that feel so timely as we come through this difficult time. Other People's Problems, available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast.
1: Over the years, here at Tapestry, we've tried to explore some of the big questions. What does it mean to live a good life? Why is there something instead of nothing? What fills the void if you've moved away from religion but still find yourself yearning for some kind of spirituality? Malcolm Doney has been tackling the big questions too. Now, Malcolm is a funny kind of priest. He worked in advertising and journalism, and even now, after being ordained in the Church of England, he's not quite sure he's cut out for this.
0: I'm not constitutionally built to be a priest, because I don't like religion enough to want to be doing it all the time. That's why I've always done other things. I've never run a church. Uh, So I paint and I write and I do church. It's a kind of portfolio life.
1: Malcolm is a firm believer in paying attention to your hunches. And one of his is that there is something divine at the heart of all that is.
0: I think we have to start with the idea that the divine or God is by definition beyond definition. So you can't shrink wrap the divinity. You can't mm. contain it in a book in, you know, written in two columns. All we can do is ask the questions and be open to the idea that, that divinity might be present and live with that possibility.
1: Something I was curious about is Malcolm Dhoni's approach to saying a prayer. Some of his sound more like one half of a really intimate conversation.
0: This one's for you, sitting opposite me. Whatever it is you need, I hope you get it. Let's hope that someone today will send one out for me. Amen. For that last breath, and this next one, for this heart which keeps on beating, even though I never notice, for being here, for being alive. Thanks. Amen. This is me wishing things were different, wishing the world well, wishing you well, today, saying a prayer. Amen.
1: Malcolm Doney coming right up. This is Tapestry. I'm Mary Hines. when a self-described agnostic Christian sets out to do a project with a guy who says that a while back he accidentally became a priest. You won't end up with any conventional take on what it means to be human. Malcolm Dhoni, the agnostic one, and Martin Rowe, the accidental one, have teamed up on a guide to life's biggest questions. It's called Hold On, Let Go how to find your life. And Malcolm Doney is on the line from his home on the east coast of England in Suffolk. Hi there. Hi. You know, we sometimes joke on Tapestry that when your beat is what it means to be human, <laughs> that's a pretty audacious thing to uh, to delve into, but that's exactly what you and Martin are tackling with your latest project. Did it strike you as a bit cheeky to take on the really big questions about the meaning of life?
0: Well, they have- The big questions, because they're the big questions and they're real. I think that for both of us, that's why we're who we are and where we are, because those questions are important to us, interesting to us, and we're kind of slightly haunted by them. You you
1: frame this in an interesting way that it's the big moments, the birth of a child, for instance, perhaps the death of a friend. The big moments might offer some clues as to how to live in the small moments. And it's like the old Annie Dillard quote, I think, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. What does that say to you, that, that Annie Dillard thought?
0: You're going to tell me who this poet is who talked about heaven in ordinary. William Blake also talked about eternity in a grain of sand. I think that there is something about ordinary life which tells us about eternal verities and vice versa.
1: And, and okay, so let's get right into this. The idea of greeting the day. You You've landed on 26,000 as a very rough number. That's how many mornings a human being might experience – How do you feel grateful for something that happens 26,000 times?
0: I think it's to do with trying to pay attention rather than let it all float past. So I'm very lucky because I live in a rural part of England on the East Coast and we overlook an estuary. So when I get up in the morning and uh, pull the curtains wide, the light is different. What I see is different than it was the day before. Hmm. You start new. It's not what it was yesterday. So you try not to take it for granted, I think.
1: You and your co-author Martin Rowe have pointed out that Samuel Beckett thought of poetry as a kind of prayer. And I think, you know, confession time here, I've always been a little bit psyched out by poetry. I'm, I think a lot of the metaphors go right over my head. I'm just not getting it. So lead me into this, if you would, Malcolm. What's the right way to do poetry, to be open to poetry?
0: Well, I think it's to sit with it. We are a kind of soundbite generation, so we get instant hits. Um, And I think that that's one of the things that poetry kind of disrupts slightly in in, in a good way, uh, in that it it gives you the opportunity to look at things slightly out of the corner of your eye. Mm. And I, I think that that's one of the things that it does it's like looking at nature people i know who are naturalists who are very good at observing what's going on around them um often see those things on the periphery rather than looking at them directly so i think with poetry uh, this is something that i've had to learn to do uh, because i'm a relative newcomer to poetry it's really only been in about the last 10 or 12 years that i've been able to appreciate it more, mm. is, is to change the metaphor to kind of let it seep in.
1: And, and how, how do you think the right poem at the right time be like saying a prayer? Because, you know, I'm, I'm picturing Samuel Beckett, and this was not a guy given to cheap sentiment. How, how, how does it become a kind of prayer if, if you're encountering the right poem at the right time?
0: I think it's to do with resonance. It's finding an echo or something, a sense of fellow feeling with with what the poet has observed. You read a line and you sit with it and you think he's right or she's right. That makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. There's a great poem called Mint by uh, Seamus Heaney where he talks about mint being at the end of the sort of alleyway. He talks about it being discarded it's a lovely way of talking about something which is sort of not much thought of but when you slice it you get you at that that leaf of mint and you crush it the smell you get or you put it in water to make tea mm. or you put it in vinegar to make mint sauce it becomes something lovely again it's back to that 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 idea of heaven in ordinary that uh, I think is important Lovely and cruel. Simple and difficult. Extraordinary and quotidian. Sometimes on the same day. Life, and the questions it asks that we carry around with us. Questions as old as our oldest ancestor and as fresh as that coffee brewing. Why is there something rather than nothing? What is this thing called love? Why did she have to get sick? How come music makes me cry? We once looked for answers in churches or synagogues, in mosques or temples and over several thousand years those great households of religion claimed a monopoly on the answers. But many of us stopped believing in them and stopped belonging to them. We're fine sitting in the tranquility of some ancient house of prayer but please don't tell us what to believe. We're shy of certainty Suspicious of authority, but still those questions. Is there some hidden current to carry us through our days? The resonance of some distant melody? How the big moments, the birth of a child, say, or the death of a friend, may leave us wondering about how to live in the small moments? If love is worth it? How to forgive someone? Why people pray? What's a good life? Some days we hold on, others we let go.
1: Malcolm Doney, reading from his book Hold On, Let Go, How to Find Your Life, co-written with Martin Rowe. Doney is an artist, a writer and a priest in the Church of England. This is Tapestry on CBC Radio 1. There's a phrase I've always liked. It comes up in your book. Um, I had not realized it was the work of a, uh, of a Scottish writer a century ago. Um, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. And thank you to the 19th century Scottish writer, Ian McLaren. I, I had never even heard the name. What, what does it say to you, this be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle?
0: Again, there's a real uh, honesty about it that... If you're somebody like me, who has a tendency to self-pity, you want people to give you a break. You're thinking, hang on, you know, I haven't got much money or I'm worried about this or my foot hurts. And so you're hoping that people will understand, have a little empathy. And uh, I think that the more we survive on this earth, we realize that life's not always easy and that we have to understand look beyond people's bluffness or apparent self-confidence or smiles and realize that that's not all that's going on. And so we have to be understanding.
1: What, what do you think would change if, if people were able to move out into the world with, with that thought at the forefront, that I might be encountering people who seem very self-confident, very bluff, ready smile, but that's not always what's going on inside. What would change, do you think?
0: I think it would make you uh, slow to judge. I think that instinct is very important and you often get a hit off somebody when you meet them first time, but sometimes you have to interrogate that and think, what's really going on here? And I think that's particularly the case actually when people are difficult or angry or in your face when you want to have nothing to do with them, then you... Also have to think. Well, what's going on here? What's make them like this? And that uh, allows you to give them a bit of latitude.
1: In instead of thinking, "Who's this gruff bugger? I don't want anything to do with them."
0: Yeah, yeah. Rather than turning your back on them, you you again is is it's a bit is like, back to the uh, idea of poetry. I guess is you uh, you have to spend a bit of time there thinking what's going on. Mm.
1: There's another thought about being kind. Um, You quote the Dalai Lama with the tea and water comparison, and I've, I've I've never heard this. Kindness is like water, and religion is like tea. Take take me through that one.
0: Well, it's an interesting idea, isn't it? Is that is that we all need water? You can't live without it. It's an absolute essential. But there are ways of making those essentials richer, more interesting to have more flavor. And I think that at its best, religion or spirituality or trying to give some shape to those things develops it and makes it more, helps sustain it. I'm
1: thinking of it in the context of the Dalai Lama's thoughts on this. Does does that mean kindness is the thing that's truly essential that we can't live without, and religion is sort of like the thing that adds flavoring?
0: That's my take on it. Yes. I think you can live quite happily without religion, but I think that what religion does to kindness is it can give it some structure and some shape Hmm. and maybe a purpose rather than it j- just simply being something that's individual.
1: The two of you, you and your co-author, have a real fan in Bono from you too. And uh, he described an earlier book of yours as being a sacred text for the more earthy reader. So, so I'm, I'm curious, apart from all the holy books people are familiar with, the traditional books, what counts as a, as a sacred text for you?
0: Well, I think there are a lot of sacred texts. I do, because of my upbringing and my tribe, I guess, think that the Bible is my favourite book in the world. And that is a sacred text for me. But it's not sacred because I think that it has been decreed from above or dictated as holy writ. I think that it's sacred because it's a human book which anthologizes thousands of people's searchings and explorations and hints and suggestions about why we're here and what we're for and what God might be like and that makes it extraordinary and rich. I I don't think it's God's book which tells me who I am it's my book, which tells me what God might be like. So the sacredness, I think, is, is that enormous multifarious construction and contributions that have been made over the centuries to it that give it that sacredness
1: some of this is so hard to put into words which we've struggled with for years on on tapestry when when you rest with some of those texts some of those books and passages what's your sense of what or who the divine might be where where do you land on 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 that idea
0: gosh that's not uh, an easy question no i know um <laughs> I think we have to start with the idea that the divine or God is by definition beyond definition. So you can't shrink wrap the divinity. You can't mm. contain it in a book you know, written in two columns. All we can do is ask the questions and be open to the idea that that divinity might be present and live with that possibility. Uh, I don't know how to explain it either, but my life experience and what I've read and who I've met has given me a, a hunch that we're not alone in the world and that there is something else, someone else is there, but part of the universe. Yeah,
1: I I love the word you've landed on that that you have a hunch because so often people are, uh, you know, people are sometimes dogmatic when when the question turns to is there a god, is there something as opposed to nothing. And I love the humility that's baked into you know my life just tells me I have this hunch that there might be something. I I, I like the humility. In in that answer, Malcolm?
0: Well, thank you. Uh, But I think we have to live with that humility Mm. because the world is so vast and so wonderful and crazy and unknowable. I mean, hunch is my word for faith, really. Mm. Um, And and, uh, I think I'd draw uh, on the life and experience and practice of scientists in that way um, I think life has to some degree be a matter of trial and error. You ask a question and see what comes back and then you live with that for a bit and test it and um, see whether it's sustainable. Mm. And I th- I think that, that we have to do that. We, It has to be a hunch rather than a certainty. I don't think faith is certainty at all. Mm. The wonderful former Bishop of Edinburgh, Richard Holloway has always said that the the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty.
1: Because huh. if
0: you were certain, you wouldn't need faith anyway, would you?
1: Right, right. You're with Tapestry. Thanks for inviting us in, whether it's on podcast, on the CBC Listen app, on CBC Radio 1, or online at cbc.ca slash tapestry. Hello to you. My guest is Malcolm Doney, one half of the duo who wrote the book Hold On, Let Go, How to Find Your Life, with co-author Martin Rowe. On days when it feels as though the world is falling apart... Malcolm admits that believing in some higher power can be hard, even for believers. He and Martin write, On those days when we can't find the words for what is happening in our lives or in our world, maybe all we can do is light a solitary candle on the kitchen table, stand without words in a two-minute silence, lay a flower at the roadside, bow in respect as the funeral cortege goes by. Sometimes a prayer is as simple as this poem by Michael Lönig. These circumstances will change. This situation shall pass. Amen. From the book Hold On, Let Go, How to Find Your Life. Now back to that conversation with co-author Malcolm Doney. Let's play with this idea of earthy wisdom for a minute, this idea uh, of Bono's. Um, You get into the idea of home in Hold On, Let Go, having a place you can claim as your own. And I I, I love the example you use here because it doesn't get much more earthy than a shepherd with her sheep. Tell me about um, Amanda Owen and the, the spirituality of finding your place.
0: Well, Amanda Owen is a shepherdess who lives on on the kind of the wild dales, and it's a place that's quite fierce. You, as a Canadian, will know what you know snow and wind and uh, freezing temperatures are like. And uh, I don't know Amanda. I've interviewed her once, but I, I think I've know shepherds and I've kept sheep myself. And one of the things that being involved with animal life and with the elements does earth you in the sense that uh, you have to find a place for yourself where your feet are on the ground you are grounded
1: and you you get into the word heafing what what is it to be heaved? I don't know that one
0: well that's again that's that's one of the things that sh- that sh- sheep do is that they find a place you know uh out there. Or on the hills. It's not just random. They don't just settle down. They they have a place to which they return. And I think that for for us as human beings, it's really important to have that sense of place. It may be a physical area or it may be a place in the sense of a group of friends or A church community, a worshipping community, or something where you can feel at home, where you can be yourself. And I think there's enormous security in that. It's very nourishing. Because home is a place where you can kick your shoes off and you can belch and fart and sing and do those things that are just you. You're not performing. You're not on your best behaviour, mm. and I think that that's we all need places like that.
1: And and what's yours? Do you have a place like that?
0: I do. I grew up in the city, but 14 years ago we moved to the country, and we were able to build a studio because I paint. We wanted a barn, but it didn't have a barn, so there's an old 1950s garage which we just turned into a barn where I paint and sit. And it's a place where I'm me, not anybody else. I'm a bit of a people pleaser, you know, so I want to be liked and I can turn on the charm. But when I get into the studio and it's just me with the wood burning stove and the dogs in the beds around my feet mm. and my wife who's in the corner making pots or fixing things, that, that's it. Heaven on earth.
1: Mm. Well, you you quote the monk Thomas Merton on this thought. Um, Merton's quote being, "It is essential to experience all the times and moods of one good place." So, I, I take that to mean it's important to experience the the rough edges of your good place as well, not to just see it when the sun is shining, but also see it when you know the rain is coming through the roof.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. It's in that sense, it's a kind of metaphor for. All your experiences, you know, we talk quite a lot in the book about love and how important love is. But as we all know, once you love, you become vulnerable. You're vulnerable to having your heart broken. You lose people. Things go wrong. None of that's a a good thing, but it's, it's part of being human. That you have to take all those things on board they 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 enrich you so it is like experiencing the seasons and and taking what's come and rolling with it.
1: Anne Lamott was a guest here um, ages ago, and I had not heard this line of, of hers. It's one you and Martin turn to, I think, for inspiration. <laughs> Almost everything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes, including you. <laughs> we <laughs> we hear this so often, you know, put down your phone, touch some grass. And I think for a lot of us, we're all for this idea in principle, but we never quite manage to unplug. Are, are you able to do it? How, how do you make yourself? um unplug for a few minutes or longer
0: I'm really rubbish at it <laughs> I've been on retreats and silent retreats and I hate them I can't get rid of the monkey the chimpanzee in my head yattering the way the whole time right I find meditation almost impossible but I think there are other ways of doing it that's just me so I really i do recognize that other other people who can go into silence who can live in the moment and learn how to breathe they they find it really helpful and i think it's good but i think the unplugging is important uh, just before i sat down with you mary i i went off onto the heath with our two terriers mm. dot and doris <laughs> and they scampered off uh, into the bracken uh, sniffing and everything and 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 I walked along kind of freewheeling in my head. Uh, I was thinking about this session that we're having, but a lot of it was just tramping through the fallen leaves because we're in autumn at the moment. And it was one of those rare sunny days. And I, am, I felt unplugged and free. Mm. If I didn't have that ingredient in the day, uh, I'd shrivel a bit.
1: This is Tapestry on CBC Radio 1. I'm your host, Mary Hines. My guest is Malcolm Doney, one half of the duo who wrote the book Hold On, Let Go. How to Find Your Life, written with co-author Martin Rowe. The pair quote the artist Henri Matisse about whether or not to believe in the divine. And they write, the 20th century French painter Henri Matisse wasn't sure if he believed in God, but late in life he designed a small chapel for the Dominican sisters in the town of Vence on the French Riviera. He said, I don't know whether I believe in God or not, but the essential thing is to put oneself in a frame of mind which is close to that of prayer.
0: This one's for you, sitting opposite me. Whatever it is you need, I hope you get it. Let's hope that someone today will send one out for me. Amen. For that last breath, and this next one, for this heart which keeps on beating, even though I never notice. For being here. For being alive. Thanks. Amen. I wonder where she's from, originally. The life she's left behind. I couldn't be doing what she's doing, unless I was desperate. God help her. Amen. I can't stand this job. There, I've said it. I need to change something. I need to make a new start maybe today. So help me. Amen. I shouldn't have said that. Something snapped. I lost it. I sometimes do. He was wrong, but all the same. So was I. Sorry about that. I mean it. Amen. This is me wishing things were different. Wishing the world well. Wishing you well. Today saying a prayer. Amen. I'm not going to let this wind me up. Someone, somewhere, is facing something more serious. God help them. And me too while you're at it. Amen. Thanks for her, and for them. For her wise words and their kind smile. Thank you, people. You know who you are. Amen.
1: Malcolm Doney with a selection of thoughts/prayers from the book he co-wrote Hold On Let Go. You know what strikes me and I love every one of those little you know, like micro prayers. Um, It's as though you're speaking to an intimate, you know, there's, there's no flowery, archaic language baked into it. It, It's just, it's almost an off the cuff hello to the, to the something else, which is the object of your hunch that perhaps we are not alone. Where, Where does that, that casual demeanor come from when, when you construct a little prayer like this? The friendliness of them.
0: Someone once sa- said to me, you know what, God doesn't love you. God likes you. And that was really very important thing for me to understand. Because this whole idea of this big God, this God of love, this huge being loving you can sound really remote. And love can be so charged and so big that Uh, it's kind of frightening and creates a sort of distance It's too much to bear but the idea that God might like me or you I find really helpful because it's a way of saying you know what you're okay I want to spend some time with you I'm not trying to diminish the notion of the divine or the sacred but that sense that the God might be as close as breathing, is really very important to me, to both of us, uh, Martin and I. I think we both have this sense that God isn't this other, the divine. You can't disentangle it from creation, from the universe. It's all bound up. So it's as far away as you know the solar system, but but as, as deep and entwined as, as you know submolecular everything. Um, And so so there is a a closeness and an intimacy, which I, I find helpful and important.
1: There is some guidance on how to navigate life's big decisions. And you start with make big decisions slowly. How do I do that?
0: I think it's to do with weighing things up, isn't it? If you're going to marry someone, if you're going to change your job if you're going to move house if you're going to break up with someone these aren't things that you do on the instant it's back to that idea of being kind because other people are going through things life's complicated and there's lots of things taking place so when you make a decision it's not just whether you feel you need to take a break or do something else It's something that has ramifications and uh, ricochets. So if you're going to make a big decision, you need to think about what that means in all sorts of different areas.
1: I was intrigued by a couple of questions you recommend, specific questions for people who are stumped by a big decision. You know, the sort of decision that could shape your whole life. And part of your guidance is what would your best self do? And and how would the person that you long to be make this choice? And, and it strikes me that there's a bit of a leap of imagination required here. So I, help me navigate this advice. How do I even know what my best self looks like?
0: I think you need to, to ask yourself, or this is something that I ask myself at least, is first I say, what do I want to do? And then I ask, what do I really want to do? Mm -hmm. so the second question takes you further down and further in to where you really live and for me which is I think where the divine might abide also so you're you're going further in and asking more than one question rather than just the one that occurs to you in the first place
1: and tell me about a time you've done that when the what do i really want to do really got to the heart of the matter for you
0: moving out of london was a was a case in point perhaps because you know i'm a london boy but i'd wanted to move to the country since i was about 4 and it took me until i was 59 to to do that and i think that making the decision to to up sticks from a house where we'd lived for thirty-one years, where we'd raised our children, was a question of thinking: Why are we doing this? Is just a, is this just a whim? Is this just a romance? Or is this something which is about finding a different kind of connection? And I think that it did take us some time, because again, there were two of us. My wife loves the city more than I do, so. How was this going to work? How was that going to impact on on our lives and our futures and, and all of those kind of things? So I think that that was a case where we had actually had to look and listen quite hard as to what we were doing and where we were going because it wasn't, again, it wasn't a lifestyle choice. It was a life choice. I, I'm often irritated by it. The use of the word lifestyle, because that sounds something kind of vapid and a bit thin.
1: It does, doesn't it? It
0: does. Yes. We weren't making a lifestyle choice. We were making a life choice. It was about where we wanted to be and the kind of people we wanted to be Mm. and how being in a new place might work.
1: But but that's fascinating. Do you find you're different people in the country than you would have been in London? Does the place shape
0: the person? To say that it shapes the person makes it sound like it's one factor. I think that it it certainly makes a difference and that it is, there's definitely shaping going on because of of the experiences you're having and how you are and how you react to it. For instance, I think that living in the country, having neighbours makes a difference. When you're in the city, you tend to make your community based on people with similar objectives and people who are like you, your sort of people, and you kind of gather together. There are very lots of gathered communities. Whereas in the country, you find the person who lives next door, the person who's down the street, is much, much more important And you support them and they support you because you're neighbours. So what you might believe politically, religiously, all those kind of things, they're trumped by the fact that you live next door. Those things were different. It was a different way of living.
1: I'm curious about how important the imagination is, the, the way you see it. What's the role of the imagination When it comes to the human spirit, when it comes to spirituality?
0: I think it's enormously important because we can't live without it. Without imagination, we can't plan. We can't understand one another. It's an exercise of the imagination for me when I meet somebody to think what they're thinking what they might be like what they're going through uh, because i don't know and that helps me understand them it helps me uh, turn a meeting into a friendship i think it's also really very important in being able to hope for something i think religions are works of the imaginations that's how we we sit around and around the you know as people have for Centuries around campfires, wondering why there's something rather than nothing. Mm. So you draw pictures on caves and you pray and you do all those things. And that's imaginative. Human beings are makers. We invent stuff. Tools, machines, meals, stories, art, religions, cultures, mischief. At some indeterminate and debated over point in ancient prehistory, our creative capacity took off in what historian Yuval Noah Harari calls a cognitive revolution, and creation is one of the things that marks us out. The engine of making is the imagination, and the fuel of that engine is a question. What if? A question that sends us way beyond straightforward invention. What if I were you? In order for us to understand one another we need to imagine what it's like to be the other. Otherwise we do one another harm, trample over each other's feelings. To deliberately hurt someone is a failure of the imagination. When we cry at weddings, view movies, watch our children play, We're imagining life through someone else's eyes. Unless we can imagine that there is more than this, we're stuck in despair. Is there more to life? Imagination opens us up to infinite possibilities. What would happen if you asked? What would happen if you kissed him? What would happen if you stopped it? What would happen if you set off? What would happen if you added some anchovy?
1: Malcolm Doney, reading from his book, Hold On, Let Go. How to Find Your Life, co-written with Martin Rowe. Doney is an artist, a writer, and a priest in the Church of England. This is Tapestry on CBC Radio 1. I want to quote you here on the astronomical odds of any one of us even existing, even being alive. So someone with a lot of time on their hands calculated the odds of any of us being born at 1 in 10, followed by 2 and 3 quarter million zeros. In other words, the odds of being alive are so improbable that winning the lottery looks quite plausible. Next to this, just by being here, all our numbers came up. End quote. Could this be the number one thing in the realm of taking something absolutely for granted—that the odds against any one of us being here are are preposterous?
0: We're all walking miracles, really. Uh, it's extraordinary that that we're here at all, and the fact that we are is so exciting that we should just be thankful.
1: Malcolm, you describe yourself as um, an agnostic Christian. Martin says he accidentally became an Anglican priest not so long ago. Uh, tell me about your part of this equation. What, how does an agnostic Christian move through the world?
0: I think, you know, as we've talked earlier on, about the fact that there's yeah, so much we don't know. And if you have a a kind of sort of experimental uh, attitude towards life, where it's trial and error, you have to be open to what's going to happen to you at any one day. So that means you have to sit a bit light to things like dogma and creedal statements, because they tend to close things off rather than open them up. I think I want to live a life that's that's open to what's going to happen next rather than closed to it. So I want to go, oh, that's interesting, rather than that's wrong.
1: Mm. Well, we're, we're in a moment when a lot of people are rethinking what their church stands for, what they stand for, and this gets a little complicated for many of us. Where are you with your church right now? I understand you've perhaps pulled away a little bit.
0: I'm not constitutionally built to be a priest. Because I don't like religion enough to want to be doing it all the time. That's why I've always done other things. I've never run a church. Uh, So I paint and I write and I do church. It's a kind of portfolio life and that works for me. But there is sometimes an issue you get with the institution of church where it kind of gets in the way. I think that religion is important and I think religious habits are important. Religion is a bit like uh, gathering around the campfire and telling one another the old stories and reminding ourselves who we are and where we come from. And I think that's very important and rituals very important. But it's only good if it enables people to flourish. And so for me at the moment... One of the big arguments that's taking place in the Church of England uh, is about marriage. And it seems to me wicked that only men and women can get married and for that to be deemed to be holy. I'm at a stage where I don't really want to stand up in the front of a church and represent the institution that says that. So I'm going to take a bit of a break. So. I can sort my heart and head out about all that because it doesn't seem right.
1: You know, I was not expecting to find cool in the gang in a book about spiritual wisdom, but now that you mention it, there's a party going on right here can certainly be a kind of blessing. Tell me where you find the sacred uh, in a celebration.
0: Well, I think whenever you get people together they're happy in one another's company and there's a reason to raise a glass. I think that's a a sacred moment. I think that this happens all over the world. Martin and I used to do some work for the, the aid department for the British government and we were sent all over the place gathering stories to places like Afghanistan, Vietnam, Rwanda and so on. We met lots of people in Post-conflict situations, or in people who are very poor, but whenever a baby was born, or there was a harvest brought in, or the sun rose, the opportunity to gather and celebrate that moment was taken, and I think that that joy of, of of gathering and saying, "Hey," we're here, and being thankful and expressing that wonder that we are who we are and where we are is a wonderful, sacred moment. And um, I'm very happy to join in.
1: And that's the interesting thing about Malcolm Doney's work. One minute he's writing about the sacred nature of celebration, and the next he's quoting a song like this. one and only celebration from Cool and the Gang. Now back to my conversation with Malcolm Doney, who says a celebration, for whatever reason, is a very good way of honoring the sacred in the world. You know, just as we wrap up here, Malcolm, I've been playing around with this idea of yours, this hold on, let go. And it feels really appropriate as I'm talking to you. This show, Tapestry, is down to its last few episodes now on the air after a very long time, Any wisdom on letting go of something that's been meaningful to you?
0: One of the most important characteristics of life, and it's something we see in the universe, is change. Nothing remains the same. There are things that are precious and things that are important to us that we hold on to. But what happens is that Circumstances change, we change, our environment changes, and that we need to be prepared to let go of some of those things because they were built for a previous time and for a previous experience. We can't just keep them all in aspic. And so, while sometimes there's a sense of loss in letting go of things, there's also a sense of release and of new opportunities and something different that will take place.
1: I can't tell you how helpful that is. Malcolm Doney, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, so have I, it's been a privilege. Thank you very much, Mary.
1: Malcolm Doney is an artist, writer, and priest with the Church of England. He's the co-author of the book Hold On, Let Go, How to Find Your Life, written with Martin Rowe. Malcolm Doney spoke to you from his home on the east coast of England in Suffolk. As we say goodbye to tapestry we'd love to hear from you was there an episode that stayed with you a guest whose wisdom was helpful somehow or encouraging in your life give us a call and be part of our final episode at the end of december the number is 416-205-2424 Once again, give us a call, 416-205-2424, so we can send the show off in style. Our CBC colleagues are working on the weekend schedule and what it's going to sound like in the new year. You'll hear more details on that before too long. I'm Mary Hines, this is Tapestry. That's it for us this week. This episode was produced by McKenna Hadley-Burke and Armonic Bali. Technical production by Laura Antonelli. The senior producer is Rosie Fernandez. I'm Mary Hines. Thank you for listening.